0: So the fallenness of our bodies, the fallenness and the corruption of this world exists. But Lord, help us not to avoid the fact that you also, at the very end of Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, says that all things you work. What man means for evil, you have always intended for good. Help us to rest in that. Even if we can't understand how, help us to rest in the fact that you only do good things help us to apply that now as well to our message this morning. You're going to pray and praying for the foot family. Amen. Church family, let's revisit John chapter 17 as a call for unity. Last week we looked at and laid some foundational work for two attributes of God that cannot be Divorced from one another, though it seems like the world and different branches of so called Christianity want nothing more than to divide the love of God from the justice of God. But John 17, Jesus' own words in the garden, knowing what lays before him, why does he know what lays before him? Because he set it into motion. But John chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 17 again, is a call to unity to understand that God is at all times in harmony with himself. One being, three persons. Too divine for us to fully comprehend on earth, but yet that is not an excuse to dismiss it at all. Simply because we do not have the capacity to understand God fully in the way that he is himself, fully known, that does not mean that we cannot know God at all. We can. We do because he has made it clear to us through creation, through conscience, but most, most specifically through his word. In a, the song we just sang, the world is not only broken, it is scarred by sin. In Revelation chapter 4 where the majority of that song roots its theology in is anyone able is anyone able to open the scroll and you know what comes from those who are created beings silence the silence of heaven in that moment reveals the sinfulness of humanity reveals the sin scarred creation. But there is one who is able. There is one who is worthy. God himself. The Lion of Judah who looks as though he is a lamb who has been slain takes the scroll. Not out of revolution but out of a love just Requirement that he himself is only allowed to meet. Again, all that God does is all he can ever do because he himself is good. John chapter 17 is the good prayer of Christ himself, God in flesh, praying for his disciples and even for us about what it means to see God for who he is so that we might accurately see who we are to pursue unity together with the Word of God at the foundation. John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only. This is us, church. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. Those who will believe in me through their word. We have a rich spiritual heritage. So that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, completely, entirely, unable to be separated, perfectly one. So that the world, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and loved them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. Maybe with me where I am, to see my glory that you, are, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, just Father, holy Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Last week we looked at Exodus chapter 34 to bring up the issue of the disunity that is so so prevalent within the church, so prevalent within the culture, so prevalent within society, mankind has not ceased to try and pit God against himself. Why is this the case? Well, because Romans chapter 1, that all men suppress the truth in their own unrighteousness, because what can be clearly made known to them, the glory of God has has been made known to them, and yet they worship themselves rather than the Creator. They worship the creation rather than the Creator. This goes back to Genesis chapter 3. It goes back even further than that to Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 where God says that you may have every tree to eat but you may not eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden for on that day you will surely die. We know that even further back than that that it was always part of God's providence to decree all things to be so that he might fully display and magnify his love and his justice, his way. But again, Genesis chapter 3 is foundational to us understanding how we have reached the point in which we are in now. The two places in the Bible where there is no trace of of sin are the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. And we exist in the middle of it. We exist from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, awaiting God's restorative work of bringing about the fullness of his kingdom. As we wait, we must strive for unity, we must understand the very foundational attributes of God. Again, they are some too high for us to ever possibly imagine. Those which he, he holds for himself because he is God. And every sense of the, that, that understanding requires him to be completely and totally separate from his creation. That's what, he gets to be, that's what it means to be God. That's what he gets to do. He gets to be beyond our full comprehension. His holiness, His infinity, His eternal nature is far beyond anything you and I could ever possibly fully comprehend on this side of heaven. That's what it means to be God. And yet He has been so gracious to us, though He is transcendent above all things, He is also imminent in the sense that He desires and has created providentially through His desire, through His own will to have an intimate interaction with his people, intimate interaction with his creation. That also takes us back to the book of Genesis. Genesis is so foundational. Because in Genesis chapter 1, when we see God creating all things, he speaks them into existence. And by the sheer force of his own authority, they have to exist. They don't have to be coerced. They don't have to be compelled to exist. He makes it happen. And yet when he gets to his point in time to create man, it is the first time that we see God taking counsel with himself. Let us make man in our image, in our image and in our likeness. Let us create man and women. And then in the actual process in Genesis chapter 2 where we see the actual foundation the actual fundamental making of man it is not a speaking man into existence it is a forming of man he begins to take out of the dirt this idea that God has reached down into his creation that he has already established to be good and begins forming it in his own likeness by his own attributes to reflect his own image. It's the, it's the idea of a master potter manipulating and crafting something beyond simply speaking it into existence. And then further than that, he breathes his own life into man. And they exist in harmony Man and God. But in fact God decides of his own decision, not in the moment, but before the foundation of the world, that man it is not good for man to be alone. It was not a reactionary claim that it's not good for man to be alone. It is a proactive claim that he desired to create woman for man from man. Matthew Henry said that the reason that Adam or the reason that Eve was taken from Adam's rib is so that he would always be close to his side. Always under his arm for protection. Always near to his heart. And yet we live in a world that is post-Genesis 3. All that God has done for the human race, mankind desires more. Why? Because we desire to be like God. The creation desires to be the creator. Which has led to so many false understandings, so many false conclusions about how we can know anything in the world, how we can know anything about who God is, about what he has done, to the point to where there has become such a divide amongst those who claim to be Christians because doctrine appears to be too divisive. We looked last week, I mentioned last week the, uh, out of the Gospels, when Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword. I've come to divide even the most close-knit human relationships from one another because the weight of your eternal destiny is too great to be trapped in what the world says. Exodus chapter 34 showed us how The the loving justice of God is displayed by his own words. If you want to real quick, I'm just going to read it for you. You do not have to turn here. But in Exodus chapter 34, God reveals himself and he reveals his nature as a just but loving God. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and the transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, to deny original sin, the idea that we have inherited and have been imputed, having given and accredited to our account a sin nature from Adam, to deny this is to deny a fundamental understanding of why we are in the situation that we are in. There is nothing new under the sun. There is only a repackaging and a remanifestation of previous sins. How else do we understand that before the law, before the Ten Commandments were ever given to to Moses from God in Exodus, how do we know that when when, when Adam and Eve sinned, they knew to hide? How do we know that when Cain killed his brother Abel, he knew to bury him? How do we know? Because God has put it within the heart of each and every person, made in his image, to understand what life is all about. And yet we suppress that reality in our own unrighteousness, trying to make ourselves the creator. This is the source of division. This is the source of animosity. This is the source of all kinds of iniquity. And yet God continues to be a God of love and of justice. Today's message is the just love of God. Just meaning moral, not in the sense that we would use it in the adverbial sense, well, I just ate there last night. No, I just saw that movie. I just wanted to take a nap. Not in that sense. In the, in the as an adjective, just is rooted in the idea of moral perfection, morally pure and Right. And for the love of God to be morally pure and right, it has to be just. There is no other way in which God can demonstrate his love as the sovereign God of all things, the sovereign creator. There's no way for him to be loving if he is not just. And there's no way for him to be just if he is not loving. These two things cannot be divorced from one another like so many people want them to be. I made some important distinctions last week talking about how the unity is to be treasured and prioritized so long as it is founded on the truth of God's revelation of himself, but it needs to be discarded and abandoned if it is founded on the foolishness of man's own autonomy. That's why Adam and Eve were so easily, that's why they were so easily deceived in the garden. God had decreed for it to happen so that he might demonstrate the full magnitude of his love and his justice on the cross, but it is why Adam and Eve were so easily deceived. The desire to be like God tickled their imagination to have their own autonomy, to be able to do what only God can do. That's what leads to Romans chapter 1. That's what leads to 1 Corinthians 1.18, that the the cross is foolishness to the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The spiritual things of God cannot be understood by the natural person because they are foolishness to them. You're telling me that someone who has committed horrible atrocities against fellow man upon understanding their need and their desperation for God to be forgiven, you're telling me that person can receive forgiveness if they throw themselves at the mercy of God and they can be forgiven? They can be saved. They can have access to God upon their confession of him as Lord and Savior after committing all these horrible things throughout their entire life. And yet in the same breath, you can honestly say that someone who has never done anything wrong to anybody, so quote-unquote, never done anything morally wrong to another individual, but who has never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and put their faith in him and in him alone, that person is morally culpable for their sins against a holy and righteous God and can spend an eternity in hell apart from him, this is why it is foolishness to the world. Because so much of our understanding and our execution of justice is plagued by sinfulness and vengeance. It does not not hold a candle to the just love of God. Proverbs chapter 11. We looked at this one last week. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 21. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Proverbs 17. Solomon gives us more practical guidelines and wisdom. He who justifies the wicked And he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord. Again, these things must be spiritually discerned because it seems like there's an apparent contradiction there. It seems like a discrepancy. How can God show love and be loving and at the same time clear the guilty if that is considered an abomination to the Lord? Because he himself is the only one capable of meeting this requirement for justice to be satisfied by being poured out upon himself. Romans chapter four is where we will be for the rest of our time together. The triune God of the Old Testament never changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There is no difference. It is referred to by many people, by many scholars as the constancy of God. God neither quantitatively can increase or decrease in anything, that is in, in anything that is impossible with God, nor can he qualitatively increase or decrease, for there is no need for God to modify anything that he is, says, or does. To do so would be a violation of his own essence. He rests on his own sufficiency and satisfaction in and within himself. False teachers, though, rely on our being unaware of the full measure of what Scripture teaches about God's essence. To highlight or to extract a verse from its immediate context as well as from the entirety of what Scripture speaks about is dangerous. But it is what so many people rely on to make money, to deceive, to do that which is ungodly. The entirety of Scripture ought to be what Scripture is interpreted, interpreted through. We cannot allow our theology, we cannot allow our understanding of God to be the lens through which we read Scripture. Scripture must be that which filters what we think about God and how we understand Him. So when it comes to the idea of justice and love, we laid out, some, we laid out four principles. We went through them pretty quickly, but the four principles that we laid out last time first was that God's justice and his love exist in eternal harmony. They exist in eternal harmony. At no point can he ever distance himself from himself. Second was that God's justice and love are extensions of his own holiness. When God approached, when God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, Moses is terrified. He's been called by God to deliver his people out of bondage. And Moses throws out every excuse in the book not to be the guy. But God bypasses Moses and goes straight to his own character. Essentially saying, Moses, it doesn't matter. I'm going to use you because I chose to use you in the same way in which all things were created and had no excuse had no right to do anything other than exist when i said exist so too have i chosen to use you moses says who will i say has sent me when i go to pharaoh he says nothing more than short of i am who i am tell him i am sent you that's why he's able to command in micah 6:8 what is what does it mean to follow after god what is true Manhood and womanhood look like from a biblical perspective. It doesn't look like that which, has, that which culture has established it to be. Which is so tainted and scarred, again, by the sinful nature that we exist in post-Genesis 3. God says, this is what it means to follow me. To seek justice. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with God. Because that is his own nature. His justice, his love, all his attributes, they are extensions of his own holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. The whole earth is full of his glory. So when we turn our attention to Romans chapter five, to look at the just love of God, here is the foundation, here is the security and the assurance of the believer. Established in Romans chapter one, Woven all the way through to Romans chapter 5, the assurance of the believers, understanding that in Christ, there is no condemnation, that, we, that God has shown us love beyond what we could ever merit for ourselves. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. This will be where we spend the rest of our time. To summarize verses 1 through 5, would be to summarize chapters one through four. We don't have the time for that. Essentially, Paul is painting this picture of unrighteousness. No one seeks after God. Even those who are considered to be God's chosen people, the Israelites, they still, if they lived in absence of God, of faith in God, simply going through the, the ritual sacrifices was not enough. It was never meant to be enough. A person is only right before God by faith. That's why he pulls in Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. He doesn't point to different aspects of Israel in order to justify the sacrificial system. He goes straight to the source of where Israel came from. Abraham had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Anytime anybody went to the temple to to offer sacrifice on behalf of their sin, it was not the action that was What atoned for their sins? It was the faith in that which God had commanded them to do. No one is ever—Old Testament, New Testament, past, present, future—until Christ returns—is ever made right before God apart from faith in Him. Therefore, we can stand on verses six through eleven. This is a this is a old um, literary structure. I've mentioned it before, but it's been a while since I mentioned it. It's called a chiasm, a way in which writers of ancient literature would write in such a way, to present one idea, then the next idea, ultimately get to get to their essential topic of conversation. And from there, they would build back in the opposite direction. I'm going to show you, I know a lot of confused, confused faces, but I'm going to show you what I mean. Because in verses 6 through 11, there's so much there but it's verses eight and nine that Paul really wants us to understand. He builds from six to seven so that he can show us the truth of eight and nine and then pulls back and begins to show us in a telescopic way the magnitude of God. Romans chapter five, verse six. For while we were still weak. Genesis three. While we were still weak, at the right time, the providence of God, according to his established timeline, at the right time, Christ, God in flesh, died for the ungodly. Can I get an amen? But not only that, does that that mean it is a universal atonement? Does that mean that the death of God is universal? No, by no means. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. This shows us the extent of our total depravity, our radical corruption. Not that everybody is as evil as they possibly could be, but at the very core of who we are, we are stained and unable to remove our sinful corruption, ourselves. This goes to show even in the the most… If you want to think about it in a a human sense, horizontally, human to human, sure, somebody might die. Somebody might consider giving their life for someone else they consider to be a just or righteous or morally pure person. It goes on, Paul goes on to say, certainly this is more believable than those who would probably trade their life for someone they consider to be unjust or immoral. But we have to also un- interpret this in light of the rest of Scripture. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Your most righteous deeds are but filthy rags. Even the best things we could possibly present to God, the idea of dying on behalf of someone that you consider to be worthy of dying on behalf of. In our sin, it is wrapped up completely and entirely in our own depravity. Our inability to offer anything to God that is of worth for our salvation. But then verse 8 comes. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood we also rejoice in God. How can there be more than that? But we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Not to become morally upright people in order to establish social, social programs and governments and institutions to, to make sure that we are being good humans to one another. There's nothing wrong with that. That is part of the original command of man in Genesis to exercise dominion, to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. It is ultimately part of the Christian's nature to follow God and to show justice and to seek that out and to stand up against injustice. But more than that, we have received reconciliation with our God. And not because of anything you or I possibly have to give Him but because of his goodness, because of his own desire to do so. When we isolate love and justice from one another, that is where we go wrong. We try to divorce God from who he truly is. Throughout church history, even now, in major, major movements, what was first started uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, which actually was known as the Emergent Church Movement, uh, which went further back to Easy Believism, um, to, the, to the 50s and 60s, and uh, all the things that have come as a result of, you know, don't really seek this out yourself, just believe what the preacher tells you. As though the preacher is the, the, the means through which you are to be sanctified. God says be sanctified by the truth. His word is truth. All things must be examined against what has been revealed to us through Scripture. But it is of tantamount importance for the Christian today, for the Orthodox Christian, to view God's love and God's justice as full displays one of the other. What I mean by that is in verse 6, the justice of God is motivated by His love. God's justice is motivated by His love. Notice in verse 6, for while we were still weak, Helpless, unable to do anything for ourselves. Dead in trespasses and sins, as he would go on to write to the Ephesians. Enemies of God, children of wrath, all of these things. And yet he intends to use the word weak to show us just how helpless we truly were. When Jesus looked upon the masses, what did he have for them? He had compassion for them because they were sheep without a shepherd. Do not gloss over that. Do not miss the justice and the love of God in that moment in the Gospels. That Jesus Christ, God in flesh, will look upon the masses of those who are stained and scarred and choosing to live in the midst of their own darkness, but instead, He chose to have compassion, the most just compassion. A God of wrath and vengeance could possibly show anyone. Do not overlook the times in Scripture where Jesus interacts with sinful man. Because he still does it today. He is doing it now as he speaks through his word. Not that I am... Not that I am worthy to be the one speaking for him, but he is speaking through his own word. The justice of God is motivated by his love, vertically first and foremost. While we were still weak, he does not appeal to anything else aside from Christ in this moment. While we were still weak, at the right time, at his God-ordained providential time for it to happen, Christ is the one who died for the ungodly. God is at all times in all measurable ways for his glory first. And to that which we ought to say amen, but at the same time we need to say ouch because his glory means that we receive what we justly deserve for while we were still weak at the right time Christ vertical vertically pleasing to God being because it is it is God himself in flesh is able to die on behalf of sinful man on behalf of the ungodly verse 7 he he is the is a demonstration even in a human sense it is still plagued with our inability to do things for ourselves but verse 8 The love of God is then magnified by his justice. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us. God is at first and foremost at all times for his glory, which means we get to be involved in that through Christ. Your salvation, my salvation, is not a prime product of His glory. It is a byproduct of which we are included in because of His grace, because of His mercy and because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We've seen God's attitude towards sinners. Psalm 55, 5, Psalm 54 5, and 5:5 5, 5, that He does not delight in any who do evil. In fact, He hates all who do evil. And yet at the same time, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, it was his just love and his loving justice that kicked them out of the garden. And instead of giving them what they deserved in that moment, which was eternal separation from him physically as well as spiritually, he allowed them to endure another day. He preserved their lives so that one day he would bring about the Messiah who would redeem and magnify the love and the justice of God. God shows us, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is magnified by his justice. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. After Paul gives the long list of sinful descriptions ways in which man has, has been guilty of sinning. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, and such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have been reconciled to God according to his divine will, according to his good counsel. And how does he bring people, how does he bring sinful people to a relationship with himself now? Through the proclamation of his word that his truth might sanctify all those who are his and draw them to himself. For his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. The same way in which all things came into existence without a single shred of being able to talk back to him had no other responsibility than to exist in that moment. So too does he recreate us according to his will. The justice of Thirdly, in verses 9 and 10, the justice and the love of God is manifested in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look no further than to Christ as the full demonstration of God's love and justice. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that is fundamental, much more than shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. You are not saved from your weakness. You are not saved from your flaws. What what possibly could you say to God? What possibly could you say to anybody by appealing to your own personal subjective idea of what it means to be bad? There are so many ways in which modern day Christianity, again, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just a repackaging. There are so many ways in which we have tried to make our sin less than what it is. It is enmity with God. It is hostility towards God. We refer to it as our flaws. We refer refer to it as being broken. We refer to it as being messed up. All of those things are easily either overcome by or they're easily dismissed because of our own sinful struggles, but yet we have no desire to move away from them. When we see God for who he truly is, what he has said about himself and what he says about us, are we able to understand what it meant for him to give his son on our behalf. That we are saved from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if we were enemies, while we were enemies of God, you might not consider yourself an enemy, but in your sin, that is exactly what every single one of us are. But we were reconciled to him by his death, but here's the, here's the assurance if we are reconciled to God by his death and through his blood, how much more? How much more will we be reconciled by the fact that Jesus is not dead? He shed his blood. He paid the penalty that only he could pay on behalf of sinful people for the glory of God first. And for our redemption second because it was according to his plan but how much more are we to be saved by the res- resurrected living Christ the justice and love of God is not only manifested in his death but in his resurrection lastly in verse 11 more than this how can there again how can there be more than this we Rejoice. Who are the we? That has to go back to Romans chapter 1. So far, he's used inclusive words we, us, our. It sounds as though it is open to everyone. But we understand, again, in light of all that scripture teaches, that it is not a universal us. It is not a universal we. It is not a universal our. It is specific to those whom he has called to be his. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Verse 3, Concerning the Son who descended from David, the providence of God, to bring Christ through the, 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 the cesspool of human existence. To bring the Son, from the murderous, adulterous sinner into the flesh. Verse 4, declaring the Son, the power of the Spirit, the holiness, and the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ. Then he writes, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. That calling is not a means for arrogance or boasting. It is the display of God's loving justice to bring about that which he has decreed from eternity past through the proclamation of his word. So that verse 11 might take place. So that the justice and love of God might be seen through Christ our mediator. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have received reconciliation. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Christian, Your righteousness is an alien righteousness. It is loaned to you. This is a message to myself as well. How well are you doing with it? How well are you doing with that which God has given to you? Not that you might work to achieve or merit or sustain this love, because that is what is being taught by so many churches, that if God's love and his justice truly are at odds with one another, then we must work our tails off to try and maintain the love, or else he will show us the justice. Christian, take a breath. Be comforted. In Christ, it's not about what you can do, it's about what's been done. Now, live in such a way that reflects the high calling of God in Christ. Those of you who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, why not? You have heard and therefore you are accountable to the word of God to respond. There is at all times a response to God's word being proclaimed. It is a softening of the heart or it is a hardening of the heart. My prayer is that through the powerful work of the spirit, your hearts might be softened. To respond to him through the regeneration of your own sinfully dead self to respond to Christ in faith for faith is the gift. By grace we are saved through faith and this this is a gift not of your own doing. What's the closest thing related to the gift in Ephesians chapter 2? By grace you have been saved through faith and this is a gift. Saving faith is a gift of God, a work of God to recreate his own people in the same intimate way that he has created us from the beginning. And he does so through his love and through his justice. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Salvation, just like the first creation, is a work of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, brought all things into existence, created man. Through love and through justice, kicked man out of the garden. So that one day, at the right time, God the Son would enter His creation, would live the life that we never could to die the death that each of us deserve. But upon looking to Christ, throwing our sinful selves at the feet of His mercy and His goodness, He has made it abundantly clear that He is faithful to forgive those who call upon His Son. That at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That we might hear Your words, be comforted by them, knowing that, God, You are not schizophrenic. You do not change Your mind. That which You decide to do you will bring to pass, even if it's in a Genesis 50-20 way, that what man means for evil, you always meant it and decreed it to bring about the greatest good that you could possibly do because it is an extension of your own goodness. Help us to be comforted in that, even in the midst of our horrible darkness, even when we can't see what you are doing and we are pressed in every respect to, to either doubt or to despair. Help us to understand, God, that you are good and you do all things good. It may not be according to what we decide is good, but you do not change. You do not forget. Lord, how many of us would lose our salvation the same way that we so easily lose our tempers and our car keys. We thank you, God, that you are committed to fulfilling your promise, which involves your people being redeemed. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Real quick.